The passage that we're looking at this morning just continues in our study through uh, the book of First Timothy. It's First Timothy chapter 1. We'll be reading verses uh, 11 through 16, and then we'll jump to the end of the chapter, verses 20 to 21. Paul writes these words. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Then to verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, uh, it is um, our desire to have the working of your Holy Spirit within our hearts and minds, uh, opening up to us the truths of your word. But not just that we would understand, but even more, that in understanding, we would grasp how this applies to us and how we should live. So we pray for your word to be so rich within us that we would not be simply those who hear the word, but we would be doers of the word because this is what bears fruit in our lives. This is what enables us to bring honor and glory to you. This is what equips us to be salt and light to the world. This is ultimately what makes us disciples who bring glory to you and lift up the name of Jesus. For this we pray in the name of your son. Amen. Now, this passage that we look at uh, is going to focus upon this idea of the man of God. Uh, this is Paul's designation of his spiritual son, Timothy. Man of God. It's a term that was used in the Old Testament a number of times. It was used to describe Moses. It was used to describe Elisha, the prophet, and then several other unnamed prophets who simply show up as a man of God. And then also uh, the great king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel, uh, David himself. When we consider that term, the man of God, having that Old Testament background, and then we come to the New Testament, we see that the Apostle Paul designates Timothy a man of God. We recognize it is quite an honor. The only other place in the New Testament where it is used is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, where there the Apostle Paul describes uh, the word of God as that which is God-breathed, that which uh, God then uses to equip people uh, for by the word through uh, teaching, correcting, uh, reproving, uh, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so there the term man of God really becomes a synonym for the shepherd teacher or for one of the primary leaders of the church, one of the elders of the church. 
man of God, an important designation in the New Testament. So what we have contained in this idea of man of God is really the Old Testament background to it and then what we see in Timothy and 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's, it, it really refers to someone who's entirely dedicated to God and to the service of God. It's a man who reckons and considers God uh, as first and foremost in his life, but then secondly, the people of God as his second highest concern. Now, this is true of Moses. This was true of Elisha and his prophets and David, that God was first and foremost in their lives. And then their calling in their respective lives was to do all they could in service to the people of God. So Timothy, Paul says, is that kind of man. He's calling him a man of God. And then what Paul does is he exhorts Timothy with what we can find in this passage as, as eight concrete, specific exhortations that really give us a kind of full-orbed picture of what a man of God is supposed to be like. So all who would seek to be men of God would then embrace Paul's exhortation to be this way. Now, as we come to look at this, uh, I'm going to propose to you that there are four audiences who are hearing this word, even within our own congregation, and even those in terms of when Paul was writing this to Timothy, four audiences. The first audience would be this, this passage would be speaking to younger men and it would be saying to younger men, this must be your aspiration to be a man of God and to become men of God. Secondly, it would be speaking to older men within the church family and it would be saying to them, this must be your aim and goal, that in your, the maturity of your life as a Christian, you would be a man of God. And then thirdly, it would be speaking to church leaders. Uh, it would be saying this is the ideal for your continued qualification and your continued usefulness as a shepherd teacher, as an elder, even as a deacon within the life of the church. You must continue by the grace of God to be a man of God. And then fourthly, it would be speaking to everyone within the church family. It would be saying to everyone, this is your calling to pray that the men who are your brothers in Christ within the church family would all be and become and aspire to be men of God. So even though Paul specifically and primarily talking to his spiritual son, Timothy, who is the shepherd teacher that Paul has commissioned and assigned to the church at Ephesus, really what Paul is saying here has that further extension, that further implication, that further application to all of those who are elders, shepherd teachers within the leadership of the church at Ephesus. But it's not just for them. It also has that enduring value of speaking to us because the church of the living God was not simply the pillar and buttress of the truth back then. Uh, the church of the living God is the pillar and buttress of the church now. And because it is, it's required that shepherd teachers must seek to be men of God. Because, as we've said rather frequently, that the center point of Paul's epistle to Timothy is to define the church and to define its purpose. Because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, all of those who are called to be shepherd teachers must always aspire to be men of God. 
And then Paul gives these eight exhortations that I have mentioned. A man of God is someone who flees from religious profiteering. He's someone who pursues after the virtues of true godliness. He will fight for the truths of the faith. He takes hold of the eternal life that's in Christ. He makes the public confession of Jesus' name. He keeps the commandment to shepherd. He guards the deposit of the gospel, and he avoids the falsehoods of the apostates. And that's the outline of our message this morning, and we'll take these up one by one as we consider them, beginning with verse 11. A man of God is someone who's going to flee from religious profiteering. Uh, that's really what Paul is referring to in verse 11. He's referring back to, of course, all of the issues that he's described with respect to Wolfie's teachers and deceivers and so forth. But in particular, he's concerned about those who would see religion and then the prosecution of religion as a calling, as a means to worldly gain. And the, the proper way of speaking of this is to call this religious profiteering, because that is what it is. It's, it's that uh, idea, that notion, that conception, that pursuit that you can get worldly gain, you can get wealth and riches, you can fare much better than what your needed income would actually require from doing religious things, from belonging to religious ministry, for promoting a religious uh, set of beliefs or an agenda. Now, we know this happened in ancient Israel. We know this is true of the high priestly family that was uh, having the government's governance and authority over the temple. We know it was happening in the Greco-Roman world because the Apostle Paul is referring to it. Uh, we know that it was making those kind of inroads into the early church, and we know it is a problem today. In fact, the Apostle Peter refers to the inroads into the early church when he speaks to elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, uh, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And that shameful gain there refers to religious profiteering. So it's a real problem. Paul tells Timothy to flee from it. Now, does that mean that Paul thought Timothy was prone to this? That he had some weakness of character that might entice him to want to use his position and calling to become wealthy or rich? Not at all. In fact, not necessarily. Uh, Paul isn't really saying that there's a weakness in Timothy here. What Paul is actually saying to Timothy speaks more than more than to simply Timothy's own life. He's really speaking to the fact that every man has weaknesses and strengths of great character. Every Christian man has vulnerabilities. And so Paul is really addressing in Timothy all Christian men who are called to be shepherd teachers, who are called to be men of God. The point is, all men need to be exhorted to flee from their sins or potential sins in every regard, but especially because of the terrible, terrible disrepute it brings upon the name of Christ and upon the church to stay every way you possibly can from religious profiteering. Now, we come into the second exhortation. The man of God pursues after the virtues of true godliness. Paul mentions five virtues here. He mentions righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. And there's a couple of things to note about such a list as this. We find such lists of virtues in, in a number of places in the New Testament. In fact, in the next epistle, 
that Paul writes to Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says to Timothy, Pursue after righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Now, if you compare the two lists, and you notice that they're not exactly the same, uh, does that mean that Timothy no longer has to pursue godliness and steadfastness when Paul writes to him a second time? No, 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 no. Rather, the pursuit of virtue is never confined to what you find in one specific list, because these lists are designed to be representative, never exhaustive. Uh, they're really designed to be like the listing of the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Galatians 5.22. Uh, it lists nine spiritual fruits, that is, nine spiritual virtues. But it's interesting that in that list, love is the only one that's clearly contained in the two lists that Paul gave to Timothy. So does that mean that, that you know, Timothy doesn't really need to bear any other fruit in his life as a Christian? Well, of course not. Again, the lists are partial. They are representative. They're never exhaustive. The point of this is that the call to Timothy is to pursue the spiritual virtues which are going to continue to conform him to the likeness of Christ. The call to every man is to be a man of God who would pursue, therefore, love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and righteousness and steadfastness and faith and godliness, any and all virtue that clearly is a fruit of the Spirit any and all are to be pursued, and that pursuit is to be done by fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and by abiding in him. Now, the third exhortation, we can look at this way. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to flee in the first exhortation, and now he's telling Timothy to fight in this third expect, uh, exhortation, to fight for the truth of the faith, that is what a man of God does. A man of God is someone who's going to fight for the truth of the gospel. Now, what does it mean then to fight for the faith, to fight for the truth of the Christian faith, to fight for the truth of the gospel? It means to fight against everything that's raised up against the knowledge of God, both inside the church and outside of the church. So Timothy must fight the wolfish deceivers who seek to arise from within the ranks of professing Christians. But he also must address those things that are outside of the church in the world of his day. Now, in Timothy's own day, the New Testament era within the Greco-Roman world, uh, we can list these things that uh, show up within the New Testament itself. There's the paganism of the, of the Roman Greek world of their mythologies. Then there are chief philosophies current during that day, uh, Epicureanism and uh, Stoicism. And then, of course, there's the Judaism, you know, all the Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, who were constant enemies of the gospel and of the Christian faith. Then you have the Judaizers, who were the Jews who accepted Jesus, but who wanted to insist that every Gentile Christian must not only accept Jesus, but then also accept the law of Moses. Uh, must undergo the, the circumcision, and then must adhere to all of the regulations of the law. And as well during this time, there was a new form of paganism that was developing. 
Uh, this movement adopted Jesus as its central religious figure. It rewrote his story. It redefined all of the vocabulary of salvation and of saving grace. And it is linked to what Paul says back in chapter 4, that the Holy Spirit was predicting a time in which the doctrines of demons and of deceitful spirits would begin to proliferate. And history has come to know this uh, kind of new paganism that developed as Gnosticism. So all of these anti-biblical philosophies and all these anti-religious movements were pressing hard to keep the people of God from seeing the truth of the gospel. And they were pressing hard to pull Christians away from gospel truth. And so the man of God must know the enemies of the faith in order to fight the good fight of the faith, in order to protect the truth for the sake of brothers and sisters in Christ. So I would say to all of us, I would say to young men who aspire to be men of God and to those who are involved in shepherding the church as shepherd teachers, don't let anyone ever tell you that all you need to know is the Bible. Um, in 40 years of, of ministry, I've heard that trope mentioned any number of times. I don't understand why uh, you Christian uh, leaders think that you need to uh, read widely and study widely and understand all sorts of stuff. All you really need is the Bible. And my answer to that with consistency has been, well, that's not the example that the New Testament gives us in terms of the premier man of God, who is the Apostle Paul himself. Uh, the Apostle Paul had incredible competency with respect to the ways and the wisdom of the world. He understood, of course, his background in terms of uh, Judaism so incredibly well that he could debate the best rabbis of the day. He understood the intricacies of, of, of what it means to be a, a Jew in terms of their belief that one is saved by one's righteousness, saved by one's works, saved by one's keeping of the law, so that he could spot what Judaizers were really all about, how they were compromising the saving grace of the gospel and imposing a grace plus works approach. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. The Apostle Paul was so well trained in the ways of the world that he could go to Athens, to Mars Hill, where all the philosophers gathered together in the Areopagus, and he could debate them and talk to them and present biblical truth on their level. So don't let anyone ever say to you that all you need is the Bible. The Bible is absolutely necessary. The Bible is indispensable. And every man who wants to be a man of God must know his Bible better than anything else. But because you're committed to knowing the Bible better than anything else, never means, never ever means, that you shouldn't also understand the ways and the false wisdom of the world. Because you have to be able to see it. You have to be able to identify it and you have to be able to address it. Paul was highly trained in the ways and wisdom of the world. And that's why Paul himself was his own best example of how men of God are to speak to and to address people of the world. He writes about this actually in Colossians 4 verses 5 and 6. Paul walked, if you read those verses, you notice Paul himself walked in wisdom toward outsiders. He made the best use of his time 
in interacting with non-Christians. His speech was always gracious, not combative, not condescending, not generating friction, but seasoned with salt. His words were designed to work like salt as a preservative of the truth, but also to cause the taste of the truth of the gospel to be more flavorful. He spoke with wisdom in order to know how to speak to each person he met. So in principle, uh, we see in Paul, the main teacher and example for Timothy, the connecting of spiritual virtues, which we've covered, with how the man of God was to fight the fight of the faith with respect to the enemies of the gospel. So men of God, keep yourself from falling down to the level of the world when you contend for the truth of the gospel. Don't allow the world's ways to infect and to affect and to effect the way in which you hold the truths of the faith and fight for the truths of the gospel. Be men of God. Now, the fourth uh, trait that uh, and the fourth exhortation that the apostle gives here essentially is, is, is all about how when we are involved in these spiritual battles, both inside the church and outside the church, we as men of God must keep our vital connection and union with Christ. And that is why Paul says to Timothy to take hold of the eternal life, the eternal life that is in Christ. Now, what Paul is saying to Timothy can best be understood here if we look at a, a key verse in, the, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17, verse 3, because it tells us what Paul means by eternal life and taking hold of eternal life. Jesus says this as he's praying to the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life, defined by Jesus here, eternal life that Timothy is exhorted to take hold of is knowing God in and through Jesus, who as the son of the living God is the way and the truth and the life to God. So saving faith is embracing and receiving Christ and trusting Christ, one's faith placed in Christ and his saving work upon the cross. Taking hold of eternal life is to take hold of Christ. It is coming into that personal relationship and personal knowledge of God the Father through Jesus Christ. But hadn't Timothy already done that? Well, of course he had. In fact, that's why the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, something that had happened a number of years earlier. So what we need to see here, and what we, we must never forget, is that the New Testament presents our salvation according to three verbal tenses. The past, uh, and the present, and the future. Uh, Paul delineates that in Philippians 1.6. Listen to what Paul says there, where he talks about being confident of this, that he who began this good work in you will carry it out until the day of Christ Jesus. Now notice the Apostle Paul's three tenses. It's what God did. 
a, a good work that he began in the Philippians, present tense, that which he's carrying on, and then the future tense, until the day of Christ Jesus. We must always recognize that when we think about salvation in the New Testament, it, it always implicitly or explicitly carries these three tenses, that what God has begun to do, God will continue to do, and God will complete in his work in us. But in the present tense, Paul is addressing Timothy as a man of God. In the present tense, Paul is saying to Timothy, you must be actively holding on to Jesus Christ, who is your eternal life. Right now, continue to take hold of Jesus Christ. You've got to take hold of him. How? By abiding in him, by fellowshipping with him, by depending upon Christ, by praying to Christ, by studying the teachings of Christ, by listening to the voice of Christ as they are given in the infallible and inerrant scriptures. And this is the call to duty for every man of God. Take hold of Christ. Because in taking hold of Christ, you are taking hold of the one who is eternal life. Oh, if only we understood this better. If only we understood how absolutely necessary it is to follow Paul's exhortation here. To take hold of Christ intimately. To take hold of our communion with Christ daily to take hold of that fellowship and abiding in Christ, which will grant us strength to be the men of God that God has called us to be. Now, the fifth exhortation involves how the man of God makes the public confession of Jesus' name. Paul reminds Timothy that earlier in his life of discipleship and service, he had stood in the presence of many other believers to make his public confession and profession of faith in Christ. Now, at that time, that confession of Christ was Timothy declaring Christ was his first love. Christ was his first loyalty. Christ was truly his Lord and Savior. But I want you to think about the role of witnesses. Why is the role of witnesses important? It's not just you did this in the front of Christian believers. Paul specifically calls them witnesses. Now, in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, in that Judeo-Christian perspective, a biblical perspective, Witnesses were always important to validate the truth of anyone's personal testimony. Witnesses could function on your behalf. That is, they could validate your character and they could validate the truthfulness of your words. But witnesses could also function against you to expose your inconsistencies or to expose your contradictions or to expose the falsehoods and lies in your testimony. In other words, Paul is reminding Timothy that his calling as a man of God must continue to be validated by those who witness his life. Because not only is his life to be a public life before the church, 
everything he does is going to be done in the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus Christ. And that's why then Paul points to Christ, who made his own public good confession during his trial before the highest authority of the Roman Empire in that region, uh, there in Israel, Pontius Pilate. Jesus confessed to Pilate that he came into this world to bear witness to the truth and that everyone on the side of truth would listen to his voice. And men of God, when you publicly confess the name of Jesus, you are confessing to being on the side of truth. You're willing to follow Jesus and you're willing to have your fellow believers as witnesses for you or against you as to whether you are truly following the truth. Whether you are truly, in terms of the words you give out, properly, accurately, faithfully, reflecting the voice of the truth as we have that truth in Jesus. The sixth exhortation that Paul gives here essentially says that the man of God is to keep the commandment to shepherd uh, before God, to keep this commandment before God unstained and free from reproach. That's what is spoken of in verse 16. Paul speaks of the commandment. Now, when he speaks of the commandment, he's referring to how Jesus actually used this word in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, teaching them, saying this to the apostles, teaching them, meaning the people that they would disciple, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, this is to point out that Jesus summed up all of his teachings as what he had commanded. And the shepherd shepherd teachings call, teaching, the shepherd teacher's calling is to teach the church all that Jesus has commanded. And that is the commandment that Paul is referring to with respect to Timothy here. He's charging Timothy to keep this commandment, to keep the commandment that sums up all of the teachings of Christ in order to feed the people of God faithfully as a shepherd. And in faithfully teaching the word of God, teaching everything that Jesus taught, he's not to blemish the word of God. And by his own life and character, he's not to bring any reproach upon the word of God. But that's what Timothy's called to. It's no different than what Paul had said to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16, where he was to watch his life and doctrine closely. And in that manner to ensure that he would be saving those who would listen to him. That is, he would be saving the faithful in the church from falling away according to the apostates within the church. The exhortation is to keep the commandment, to faithfully teach the word of God as Jesus authorized it for the church. The seventh exhortation moves down to verse 20. The reason we're doing that is I wanted to focus upon the man of God and so next week, we will look at those verses we're not covering this week in terms of the God of the man of God, because those verses take us to that one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
But now verse 20, down to verse 20. The man of God guards the deposit of the gospel. Now, the idea here is that a man of God keeps safe that which has been entrusted to him, that which has been entrusted to his care. And that's the essential idea of stewardship. And Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when he says, this is how one should regard us. That is how Christians should regard the apostles, should regard those who are shepherd teachers and leaders as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Paul guarded the deposit of the gospel as it was entrusted to him as a steward of the mysteries of God by keeping the cross the center of salvation, by keeping the work of the cross in his sacrificial atonement for sinners as his mission and his message. So Paul declares this to the church at Corinth. He says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verses 22 through 24, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in the second verse in the next chapter, quoting from the New American Standard translation, where Paul says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, the, the exhortation here is eminently important. The man of God guards the deposit of the gospel. Now, there are any number of issues within a broken culture that Christians need to be deeply concerned about. But we need to make an important distinction between those things which are specifically gospel issues and those things that are gospel implications. Fighting the brokenness of the culture is a gospel implication, but it's not a gospel issue. Breaking down the institution of slavery in the Greco-Roman world was a gospel implication, but it was not a gospel issue. Breaking down the paterfamilias, that broken form of marriage and family structure, was a gospel implication, but not a gospel issue. How we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a gospel implication, but not a gospel issue. How we fight against the greatest social evil in our nation, the killing of the unborn in the wombs of their mothers, is a gospel implication, but not a gospel issue. Gospel implications are incredibly, eminently important. Every Christian should be actively engaged in challenging the broken and sinful culture according to the implications of the gospel. We need to fight the brokenness of this culture because truly we would not have the racial conflict that we have in our country today if the true church in the South and if the true church in the North during the Reconstruction era after the Civil War had actually worked to break the color barriers 
imposed by the outrageous and anti-Christian Jim Crow laws. But they weren't just anti-Christian. They were anti-humanitarian. They were anti-human being. They were anti the image of God. And the consequences of this, our failure to do this has given radical cultural Marxism an unimpeded playground to define the very nature of this brokenness and to promote its vision of what racial justice should look like. And so the failure to take gospel implications is a huge failure to be salt and light to the world. But the call to racial reconciliation is not a gospel issue any more than the evil of abortion is a gospel issue any more than raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a gospel issue. These and all of these are gospel implications. The man of God is called to guard the deposit of the gospel that's given to him. The gospel is the primary issue of the church. And the Apostle Paul tells us it is Jesus Christ and him crucified. While at the same time, simultaneously, we must be driven by the implications of the gospel to engage the broken systems in our culture. It is the only way we can fulfill our mandate, a gospel obligation, a gospel mandate, a gospel implication in order for us to be salt and light within the culture. The gospel is centrally the saving message which the church must guard. But gospel implications are the ways in which God has called upon us to love our neighbors as ourselves. The gospel issue is the saving work of Christ. The gospel implications are the outworking of the gospel truths in our lives as we engage a broken culture as we seek to be salt and light to a world that desperately needs Christ. And finally, the man of God avoids the falsehoods of the apostates. So this is how Paul closes his letter to Timothy, final and practical advice. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Now, this is really a final warning to Timothy. Keep his head straight. Keep your head gospel-centered straight. Many voices are going to be pushing at you to go beyond the gospel message, to find a deeper truth, to see ministry in a different way. But Timothy and all men of God, you must keep your heads straight in the midst of so many voices that are trying to set their agenda for what it means to be a faithful shepherd within the church because the falsehoods of apostates are numerous. All around us, there's going to be persons of great ability and great influence who actually swerve away from the faith and swerve away from the truth from our own ranks. And we have seen this in our own day. We've seen men who were much very who, who once were very, very strong voices for a godly approach to marriage, uh, who were calling the marriage issues and so forth gospel issues. They were very strong voices. But they've swerved from the truth. They've come to the point of rejecting God's view of marriage. They've divorced their wives. They've embraced the homosexual lifestyle. 
That is why those who are shepherd teachers must be true men of God. Because the Christ we serve is the truth. And his voice is the infallible voice of the truth. And the church we serve, his body and bride, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so, young men, aspire to be men of God. Older men, conform your faith and practice to what it means to be a man of God. Elders, deacons, maintain the calling, your calling, in all faithfulness to be men of God. And all godly Christians, especially godly women, pray for this great need of the church in our day, that men who profess to be Christians would, in truth, be men of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, enable us to pursue what it means to be, as men, men of God. Enable your church as a whole to pray and earnestly desire that the men who call themselves Christians would each and every one aspire to be men of God. Lord, daily remind us of what the church is, the pillar and buttress of the truth, so that we would pray that each of us would live out our lives so that we would be salt and light with respect to the truth in this world. Oh God, give us more of Christ so that we may be more of what he wants us to be in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, I want us to conclude our service this morning by by meditating upon this great hymn, 559. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. In service which thy will appoints, there are no bonds for me. My secret heart has taught the truth that sets or makes thy children free. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. Receive now these final words as the benediction of God upon us as we continue to serve him day by day. Be at peace among yourselves, brothers, while you admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. God bless.